Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could never edit that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I'm all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? Thank you for listening to Words and Nerds, where authors chat about their books, their craft, and the social and political issues that influence their process. I'm Will Kostakis, journalist, young adult author, and occasional stand-in for your regular host, Danny V. My latest novel is Rebel Gods, the conclusion to the Monuments duology that takes everything we love about fantasy novels and lets them play out in contemporary Sydney. I'll be chatting to Lily Wilkinson. She's an advocate for children's literature, having established insiderdog.com.au and the Inky Awards. And she's an expert in her field, boasting a PhD in creative writing and raising the bar for YA excellence, book after book. She has written too many to list, but I'll give it a crack. The Boundless Sublime, Pink, Green Valentine, After the Lights Go Out and The Erasure Initiative. Today, she celebrates the release of the second book in her fantastically readable and gloriously funny junior fiction series, How to Make a Pet Monster, titled Flummox. In today's podcast, we discuss enduring careers, YA thrillers, and pivoting to pet monsters. Welcome to the podcast, Lily. Thanks, Will. Thanks for that. That was a very nice introduction. Look, I do what I can. <laughs> Now, we usually begin by asking authors to pitch their latest work, but before we get to where you are now, I want to talk a little bit about how you got here, juggling picture books, junior fiction, and YA thrillers. When you set out on your writing journey, was this where you thought you'd end up? Um, no, I think that possibly one of the but one of the mistakes that I made early on was that I didn't think very much about where I was going to end up. I certainly was not very strategic with, you know, what I was doing. I just wanted to have a go at everything. Um, and I think I still want that, but I am trying to be slightly more strategic about it these days. 
You built a name for yourself writing YA rom-coms and then took a hard right turn into thrillers with The Boundless Sublime, submerging readers deep in the world of cults and brainwashing. How does that happen? Was that just you following your heart's desire or were you desperate for a change? Um, A bit of both with the added curveball that I had just had a baby. Um, But mostly it was that I was feeling a little bit tired of the rom-coms like I'd felt like I'd sort of you know I just needed a little bit of freshness a bit of a change and then I also had been thinking a lot about cults um I have some family members who are in things that I'm legally not allowed to call cults but are rather culty and I had also yeah just given birth and a lot of my friends when they had babies you know talked a lot about how when you have a baby, you don't want anything dark. You don't want, um, you know, horror or thrillers. Like I just wanted nice stories and I didn't want to see anyone get hurt because you've got this tiny little bundle of innocence to protect and, you know, you just want nice things. And I was just the total opposite of that. Like the day we got home from the hospital, I was like, okay, so it's time to watch The Walking Dead. And I just really, really craved darkness. And I thought that I would find it depressing to write a story that was dark but it was kind of the opposite it became very cathartic and you know there's a lot of exhaustion and frustration that comes along with having a small child and for me having an outlet for that in this sort of very dark unpleasant story about a girl being sucked into a cult and sort of um, experiencing a lot of deprivation like sleep deprivation food deprivation kind of I don't want to say it fit my mood because, you know, I was also very happy at the time, but it gave me this real place to channel some of those the sort of darker, more frustrated feelings I was having. And now you mentioned not having a plan for your career early on. Was it a conscious choice to follow up The Boundless Sublime with two more psychological thrillers? Um, it was a conscious choice to follow up the first one. So, um I definitely wanted to write another thriller after Bound the Sublime because I'd enjoyed it so much. Um, And so that was where After the Lights Go Out sort of came in. And that was very much a follow-on, you know, Doomsday Preppers being, you know, not a cult but quite culty. And but then I didn't want to write a third one. I my publisher wanted me to write a third one, my lovely publisher Jody. And I wanted to write a fantasy novel. I had this great thing in my head that had sort of been boiling away for, you know, for a really, really long time. And and really, you know, if you'd asked me at the beginning of my career or when I was a teen myself what kind of an author I wanted to be, the answer was always I wanted to be a fantasy author. I just got distracted by all of this other stuff, by historical and rom-coms and thrillers on the way. Um, So I I sat down with Jodie and I said, I'm going to write a fantasy novel and she sort of, you know patted me on the knee and said yes that's great um but maybe just do one more thriller first and so I I didn't want to do that and I was very grumpy about it for a little while but in the end I came up with the idea for the erasure initiative and as soon as I had that idea then I really wanted to write it because it was just an idea that I knew I could spend a lot of time thinking about and that would engage me a lot. So often we think of authors as sort of these people in their own rooms who are writing the stories that make their heart sing and we forget about sort of the publisher apparatus behind us all. How did you 
sort of react to being told what to write or was it just a, okay, this is a reality of the industry. I just need to come up with an idea. Did the idea fall in your lap? Um, I think in terms of the first part of that question, that apparatus has always been a really big part of my career and I am very grateful for it. You know, my first four books were all written on commission. Um, you know, the historical fiction that I wrote, I was asked to write all of that. And I didn't particularly, you know, I, you know, my first book was a book about Joan of Arc. My second book was about uh, convicts coming to Australia and neither of those things I was even remotely interested in when I started them. But um, it kind of gave me the scaffolding to, to, to learn to write a novel, I guess, that was sort of separated from this is the novel of my heart. And I think that was very good for me to sort of have, uh, you know, a bit of a soft entry in a lot of ways. So I never really felt like a debut author because by the time I wrote the book that was the book of my heart, which would have been pink, you know, that was my fifth book. So it was sort of felt a lot easier to sort of go in um, in that softer way. And I could never write a book by myself. I need that support from my publisher to tell me, you know, if it's good, if it's a good idea, but also I have to trust that they know a lot more about the industry than I do and that they know what is going to sell. Um, and that goes for other stuff too, like cover design and all that other stuff that, you know, I really need that support um, because I can only do the writing bit and even then I can't do that by myself either I need them to you know help me edit it and all that sort of thing what are the and big then things in- I know that I mentioned that other question but let park that for a second because I okay. want to know if you when you are working with a publisher what are the ways that you feel like they improve your work when they edit you a lot of it is like I find it very difficult to assess my own work when I'm working on it. Yeah. Like I just, you know, I'll look at it one day and I'll think, this is great, I'm a genius, and I'll look at it the next day and think it's a disaster, everything that you've ever written is trash. And so I, I don't, there's no middle ground, and I can't, I find that I, I can't objectively assess what I'm writing. So I need somebody else to tell me that. But I also just need you know, the direction to make it good. And I, I think we all do. I don't think there's many people out there. I mean, I'm sure there's a few. CS Bacat, I hear, is one of them. Um, but, uh, you know, I need that that drive. And also I really like to impress people. I'm very needy in that way. Um, and so I want their approval and their praise. And so not only, you know, in the first draft of a piece, but also like when they make a suggestion and I do that suggestion, I want them to come back and say, yeah, this is great now. Um, so part of it is that, but ultimately, you know, sometimes it's character direction um, and making characters, you know, their arc or the way that they are presented on the page to match what I've got in my head, because I think that's the really hard part to separate yourself from is, is what's on the page reflecting what's in my head. And I think that can be extremely difficult for you to see on yeah. your own. And now we come to the question, if you had a 20-second elevator ride to pitch the Erasure Initiative, how would you describe it? All right. Well, firstly, I'll say I've never had a book that was so easy to pitch as the (laughs) Erasure Initiative. So here we go. A girl wakes up on a self-driving bus. The bus is going round and around a deserted tropical island. The bus cannot be controlled. It cannot be stopped. You cannot get off the bus. There are seven people in total on the bus and nobody has any memory of who they are or how they got there. 
Now, where does a book <laughs> like this come from? This is so just, don't tell me it was like, oh, I had a chat with my publisher. They told me to write a thriller. So I had a sook for a night and then I woke up the next day and I had this gangbusters idea. Uh, well, it didn't <laughs> exactly happen like that. But yeah, so I was, Jody, um, you know, said that because after the lights go out did so well, you know, they would love to see another thriller from me. And she said, and I distinctly remember this, she said, you've done girl in a cult, you've done girl in a bunker, do, I don't know, girl in a plane, girl in a boat. And I went home and I was very mean to my family and I sulked a lot and I made, I started making lists of ideas I knew that, you know, I was sort of trying to do this slow pivot towards writing fantasy. And so I thought, well, I don't want it to be supernatural, but maybe it could be a little sort of speculative in a sort of black mirror kind of way. So I just made lots of lists about, you know, things to do with space travel and artificial intelligence and all of these things of ideas that I do find really, really interesting, you know, gene editing and you know, stuff that I'm fascinated by, but none of them were sort of sparkly enough to write a whole book about. And I know that it needs to be, you know, it, it needs to be an idea that's going to sustain me for the, you know, two-year process that it takes to write the book, let alone, you know, the however long afterwards that you then talk to people about the book. And so, you know, I just couldn't think of anything and I was going to give up. And then I, I did wake up at three o'clock in the morning um, just with this image inside my head of a girl in a self-driving car. And originally it was in the middle of a city and she couldn't escape the car. She couldn't get out and she's banging on the windows, but nobody can see in and that she has no memory of how she got there. And I knew that that was it. I knew that that was going to be the thing that being trapped in a vehicle. I love the idea of like a closed room mystery and and the constraints that that puts on you and I ended up putting way too many constraints because not only was everybody trapped in essentially one room they also had the constraint of not knowing who they were which made it all a lot harder to write than I first at first imagined it would but yeah I knew that that was going to be enough I knew that that was going to be you know an idea that was good enough for me to write. And what strikes me about the Erasure Initiative beyond the gripping first-person present narration is the cast of characters you've created. When the novel begins, there are seven apparent strangers on the bus. You have our narrator, the hot guy, an angry, beautiful girl, a shy high schooler, and three adults. From the jump, they feel distinct in their actions, their ways of thinking, and their speech. How do you craft your characters to feel so unique? I mean, with in this case, with a great deal of difficulty because I didn't realise before I started how hard it is to write character when the characters don't know who they are. Um, it's extremely difficult and they can't, you know, tell you an anecdote about something that once happened to them when they were a child and all of that sort of stuff. So I knew that what I what I decided to do was at the beginning make them all quite sort of cliched versions of of stereotypes basically you know so there's the nerdy Asian kid there's the the pretty rich white girl there's a sensible white lady there's a weird sort of scruffy looking guy with tattoos who may have done time in prison you know there's a doddering old lady like there's just these very very broad stereotypes of characters that you know, that seemed quite boring in some ways. And what I wanted to do was just pick all of those stereotypes apart so that the assumptions that these characters have made about themselves and about each other 
all end up being wrong. Um, and that was quite fun to do, really, was to sort of take all of those assumptions and then subvert them all one by one. Yeah, I absolutely love it. And now, look, we know that one day we'll be celebrating Lily Wilkinson, Dynamo fantasy author, but you have been <laughs> on this trajectory and you've been on this journey and now with three thrillers under your belt, what do you think you have learned as a writer that is going to make your fantasy novel better, if anything? Um, I think sort of looking at pacing and traction and tension was something that particularly in the Erasure Initiative was really important. I knew that it had to be an incredibly tightly plotted novel because having all these characters you know, basically stuck on a bus together means that a lot of the book is essentially just seven people standing around talking and that that could get boring really, really fast. And so I made sure that the book was plotted as tightly as it could possibly be, that every chapter had some kind of reveal and some kind of twist and that with every um, sort of resolution to every sort of piece of, of tension and something new was revealed. So every question that gets answered actually just reveals a new question that's even bigger and weirder. So I knew that I had to do that. And I think that was a really, really useful thing to learn. And I've always been very plot driven as a writer. I really like plot. I really like planning plot. It's one of, you know, it's my favorite part of the process. But I think that after doing that, I will be able to take that into the other stuff that I write and hopefully. You know, I think that plot is like a coat hanger um, in that I think some people feel like it needs to be complex and fancy, but actually what I want my coat hangers to be is just really sturdy and functional so that my coat, my beautiful, elaborate coat can, you know, be well supported by them. And for me, that's the function of plot. And I really enjoy, you know, creating that really solid structure. Now, I was speaking at a school in Melbourne last month and in the library there was a group of would-be podcasters. They wanted to interview authors and I offered to connect them with some if I knew them and I was prepared for, okay, they're going to list like a bajillion Americans that I don't know. And their eyes lit up and instantly one of them asked if I knew the author of After the Lights Go Out, which is you. Now, they're in year eight. They're younger than your first book but your writing still speaks to them and it still sort of inspires that reaction out of them. How have you kept your writing appropriate for a new generation of teenagers? I think about this a lot and it's a question that I get asked a fair bit too and I've got like six different answers and one of them is that I don't think that adults and teenagers are fundamentally that different. I think that we kind of often get this idea that teenagers are a completely different species. But I think on the whole, we all want the same thing. You know, we all want to feel belonging. We want to be loved and to love in whatever, however way we want to do that. And, you know, it's just that adults become more boring and more, um, you know, focused on like irritating human stuff like money and money. Um, and so... I love the idealism of adolescence and so part of it is tapping into that, is remembering that fire and that um, the kind of righteousness that comes with being a teenager who's just figured out uh, or just begun to figure out how the world works and is kind of angry that it's not working very well and why isn't somebody doing something about it? And I love that. I really, really love the kind of the passion and, yeah, the idealism of teenagers. 
I think, you know, on a more practical level, it's about avoiding slang. And I didn't do that in some of my earlier books. There were definitely some that have a lot of slang in them and I have regrets. Um, that's, you know, book states so quickly. And not to mention the fact that, like, in Australia, slang is different in different, not even different states, but different parts of the city. Um, so, you know, best avoided. Or you can make up your own for an extra challenge. But, yeah, I guess it is about... I mean, I spend a lot of time talking to teenagers. I do, you know, like you do, Will, I do a lot of schools. You know, I mentor teens sometimes. I do a lot of work with young people. And so that really helps. Um, I read a lot of young adult fiction as well. And I watch a lot of the same TV shows that teenagers watch. And so part of it is that. But it is about really engaging with that stuff because I love it, not because I'm sort of, you know, creepily trying to be a teenager. I have absolutely no desire to ever be a teenager again. It was awful <laughs> at the time and I totally don't want to go back there. Um, but I guess part, like, it's kind of like a redemption really is that, you know, for someone who did feel very kind of out of place and awkward as a teen, as most teens do, it's kind of nice to be able to sort of retcon that as a writer, to be able to go back and write the teenagers that sometimes do have the right smart answer to, you know, a bullying comment or whatever. There is a great satisfaction in that. And, you know, you can take the names of the kids who bullied you at school and you can give them to people who have terrible things happen to them in your books. And, you know, there is a, I guess it is just about, um, remembering that space that you lived in but also realizing that that space is not actually that different to the space you live in now but you know now I just have more confidence in myself I suppose. Now I want to pivot to Flummox which is out in stores today. Congratulations. Yay! Thank you my third book in lockdown. Three books released in lockdown. How how do you grapple with that as an author? You put so much into your work and, you know, you've you've learnt how to release a book in normal times and now you're building up experience of releasing books in this really weird time. How are you sort of coping? Um, yeah, mixed coping. It, it was much easier with the Erasure Initiative because... I had that community, you know, the community of YA readers and writers is so strong and so beautiful, whereas the the community for Australian Kidlit is also very strong and very enthusiastic, but I'm a very recent newcomer to it. So I didn't feel, um, I don't want to say I didn't feel as supported by the community because that sort of sounds a little you know, like I'm blaming the community, but it's, Do it. it's no, that's just great. That that's I... a great. That's a great headline. That's we'll run with that. <laughs> <laughs> And I did get heaps of support for HodgePodge, but it was more like my confidence in that arena that I didn't know who to talk to or what to do. And, you know, I am less used to it. And, you know, I did a lot of virtual school visits last year, but I don't have very many contacts in primary schools because I haven't done a lot of primary school visits. But yeah, it was it was hard. And it's particularly with, with HodgePodge and Flummox because it is a, a new series that I really wanted to kind of get out there and make a really big fuss about. And it is something really new and different for me. And so it has been really hard. And I was really looking forward this week to being able to go out and do some of that stuff. But Mm. it was not to be. 
Um, but it's still like the book looks so amazing. The two of them look so good together. So I'm hopeful that they will just leap off bookshelves um, at, at people and, yeah, that they will find their readers some way other than me shouting at people about them. Well, I'm going to ask you to shout about them briefly. If you had 20 seconds in an elevator to pitch loudly your How to Make a Pet Monster series, how would you do it? Um, It's a fully illustrated book for younger primary school kids and in the vein of uh, real pigeons. And it is about a stepbrother and stepsister who discover an ancient spell book in their creepy attic that contains recipes of how to make monsters. But um, our protagonists don't have all of the weird arcane magical ingredients that the spell book lists. So instead, they substitute with round the house ingredients. And as a result, they end up with round the house monsters. I love it. So what made you want to dip your toes in junior fiction? Um, partially, I have a I have a six year old, and we'd been reading a lot of junior fiction. And much as I had done with picture books when he was littler, I thought, I wonder if I could do that. And I just wanted to have a go. I mean, that's the thing I love the most about writing is there's always something new to try, and I like trying new things. That's something that I've always enjoyed doing. I love trying out a new recipe or learning a new weird crafting skill. And so this sort of felt like a something I could do I loved working with illustrators for my picture books and so I had a chat with Susanna Chambers who's the publisher at Albert Street Books which is an Allen and Unwin imprint and we sort of talked about ideas and sort of together over some takeaway food and a couple of glasses of wine we came up with this idea for how to make a pet monster Um, and then we found Dustin and sort of the book came together from there and really the sort of the the extra person that really kind of cements the team um, is Christy Lund-White, who does the interior design for the books, which is just so beautiful and makes them just really come alive. But, yeah, it's it's super fun writing junior fiction. It's very, very different. You know, they are only, you know, ten or 12,000 words as opposed to 80 or 90 of a YA novel. So it's much shorter. And I don't know, it's, it's very, very different different but really fun and I've really enjoyed writing them. What do you think brought you the most joy of writing the series? Um, Definitely seeing them um, and seeing them with the illustrations and the design and sort of realising how much, I mean, I think the design has been a really big sort of revelation for me because it's not something I've, you know, the interior design of a YA novel is often very beautiful but is, you know, a fairly standard thing. But seeing sort of the the kind of life and energy that can be brought into a book via the interior design of it has just been an incredible revelation. And I kind of wish we did do a bit more with YA, although I don't know what we do. I suppose we'd all be writing, you know, Illuminates or something. Mm. But I, I think it's that it's that being able to share that creative load with other people. So it's not just me, it is me and Dustin and Christy all kind of working together to create this one thing, and that's great. Now, we've spoken about your picture books, your junior fiction, your YA, your, you know, historical through to rom-coms, through to psychological thrillers, and then, you know, hopefully onto fantasy. What do you think makes a Lily Wilkinson book? Hmm. I don't know. I was just thinking about this just before. Um, 
I think that I am very interested in learning new things, as I said. And so I think a lot of my books do that. And I think a lot of my books usually require me to research something. And then I just like, I like sharing ideas. Like my general way to start a conversation is, oh yeah, I heard a podcast about this recently. And then I just need to tell someone about it. So I think there is, I don't want to say intelligent because that makes me sound like a wanker, but um, I think that there is sort of like me sharing things that I've learned with the reader um, and trying to do it in a way that doesn't completely interrupt the narrative. So there's that. But I think the other thing that is really important for me is encouraging, like I don't ever want to write a book that tells young people what to think because I don't think that's the purpose of fiction for teenagers or for children. But I do like to encourage people who read my books to think critically about the world and whether that is to think critically about the adults who they trust in their world or to think critically about the things that they are being taught in school or to think critically about what they have been told to believe or not to believe, which is not to say that they should not trust those things, but it's to trust them knowing that they should be trusted. I don't think, I don't particularly like the idea of blind faith or blind trust. I like the idea of young people being um, sort of careful and critical thinkers who, you know, assess the world and make the best decisions for them, not the decisions that someone else has told them to make. And on that note, uh, Lily, I would like to say thank you for joining us today. It has been an absolute pleasure to pick your brain. Lily Wilkinson's YA novels, including The Erasure Initiative and her junior fiction series, How to Make a Pet Monster, are available now. And please, if you can, support your local independent bookstores when you do go out and buy them. Thank you so much for your time today and for more insightful chats with Australian and international authors, be sure to subscribe to Words and Nerds. I'm Will Kostakis. Thank you for joining me.